Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with David Curtis Skaggs about his study of the military career of William Henry Harrison, entitled William Henry Harrison and the Conquest of the Ohio Country. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. I wonder if you could start us off today by telling us... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with David Curtis Skaggs about his study of the military career of William Henry Harrison, entitled William Henry Harrison and the Conquest of the Ohio Country. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. I wonder if you could start us off today by telling us something about yourself. Well, uh, first of all, I'm just a small-town western Kansas boy who uh, went to the University of Kansas and received my bachelor's and master's degree there. And after uh, two years of service as a lieutenant of artillery in the Army, uh, I went to graduate school at Georgetown University, from which I uh, completed the dissertation. And from 1965 until 2001, I was a professor of history at Bowling Green State University, which is in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, and I got to keep that straight because everybody thinks Bowling Green is in Kentucky. Now there is a Bowling Green in Kentucky, but it doesn't have Bowling Green State University. Uh, <laughs> and it's one of those uh, little little deals that I have to keep reminding. Bowling Green, Ohio, is located in northern Ohio, just south of Toledo, and is also very close to Put in Bay, Ohio which is from which uh, Oliver Hazard Perry sailed to win the Battle of Lake Erie in uh, the War of 1812. And I got involved in this uh, some 35 years or so ago, and uh, we celebrated the 175th anniversary of the battle. Mm-hmm. And that got me started working on the lives of two of America's uh, most famous War of 1812 uh, naval commanders, Thomas McDonough, who won a battle on Lake Champlain, and Oliver Hazard Perry, who won on Lake Erie during the War of 1812. As an adjunct to all of this, <laughs> why I decided that I needed to also do something uh, and was asked to, to write another thing about the War of 1812 in the Great Lakes area, and I decided to choose to do something on William Henry Harrison who I had thought I wanted to do years earlier, but the the problems with Perry and McDonough took me away from that for a number of years. And so in my retirement years, I then began to write uh, at the behest of uh, the editor of a series for Johns Hopkins University Press that uh, would discuss the career of Harrison as a military commander and not as a politician. And so that's what I wanted, really wanted to work on as to how he fit into the evolution of American military developments uh, during the years of the early republic. And in your book, you make a case uh, that it's his uh, military career that is 
the more historically significant contribution that he makes to the United States rather than his yes well but when your presidency only lasts one month <laughs> well, you don't make a very a very big uh, contribution in that respect and in much of his military his uh, political career was sort of upsies and downsies uh, it wasn't exactly uh, a long succession of logical progression to to where he was where he was going but his military career i think in many ways is both one understood studied and two it embodies the whole con- development of american military policies strategies tactics logistics etc uh during the first years of the republic uh from uh, the conquest of the uh old northwest uh, through the war of 1812 mm-hmm. and yet one of the many points that you make in your book is that it's not he's not a necessarily a professional career uh, officer. And you talk about how he is part of sort of this generation and at this period uh, at the beginning of your book where uh, his career develops in the sense uh, where he's on the one hand very successful militarily has this great career, but he's also something in some ways, of a part-timer or almost an amateur military story, uh, military officer. Yeah, yeah. he uh, is commissioned into the army and in the Washington administration, and very early in his career, uh, he is sent out to the Cincinnati area uh, in the aftermath of the most disastrous defeat the United States Army has ever suffered from the hands of the Native Americans. Uh, it's sometimes called St. Clair's defeat. Uh, today, it's more commonly referred to as uh, the Battle of the Wabash, which uh, uh, is a description as to where it was on, on uh, the uh, Wabash River in western Ohio. And uh, it's also should be called probably Little Turtle's Victory, since Little Turtle of the Miami was the commander of the Indians that uh, inflicted this disastrous defeat uh, on the United States Army, which is largely forgotten in in most histories, uh, but uh, is, uh, I think, uh, an important thing. Fortunately for young Ensign Harrison at this time, he was on his route to Cincinnati while the battle occurs. So he misses out on that particular fight. But that means that in the uh, creation of a replacement uh, army under the eventual command of uh, the uh, uh, <clears throat> Anthony Wayne, that he uh, becomes an important figure in in all of this. And part of this is because uh, Harrison was one of the best educated of the young officers in the Army, the son of a prominent uh, Virginia planter. Uh, He was raised on a very fine Berkeley plantation on the James River, uh, not too far from modern Williamsburg. Uh, he uh, had all of the credentials of a gentleman. His father was, of course, a member of the U.S. Uh, Continental Congress and later governor of Virginia, all the proper credentials. However, he was the third son. And as a third son, he wasn't going to inherit the family plantation. And so he uh, goes off supposedly to med school in Philadelphia. 
But when he gets there, he decides he doesn't want to be a doctor. And instead, remembering that Philadelphia was, in this time, the capital of the United States, uh, he uh, gets an audience with the appropriate officials and finds himself receiving a commission as an ensign, essentially a third lieutenant uh, in uh, the United States Army. And uh, it is there from that, using those credentials, that he gets himself uh, into uh, the Army and on the Western frontier in a time of major crisis. And and, uh, Anthony Wayne uh, likes the young ensign and brings him onto his staff. And so as a very junior officer, he is now on the staff of the senior commander of the United States Army. And uh, he learns an awful lot from writing the general's letters, uh, meeting uh, the general's senior officers, and being concerned with uh, not only with tactics and strategy, but also with a very important problem of logistics that is essential to trying to raise uh, an army and to move it and supply it uh, as it marches from the Ohio Valley all the way north towards uh, the western end of Lake Erie. That is one of the points that you return to throughout the book, which are the logistical challenges of of deploying and supporting armies in the Ohio country. And I was wondering if you could uh, take a minute to explain exactly what this region was like in the late 18th and early 19th centuries? What were the, the, the environment in which William Henry Harrison uh, came to fame in, ter- uh, in terms of the communities, in terms of the populations, uh, in terms of the geography? Uh, well, the, the major uh, water, this is essentially a world of water transportation. And you've got this in two basic fundamental areas, the Great Lakes themselves and the Ohio River Valley. And so when we're talking about transporting goods and personnel, et cetera, we've got to transport them in uh, through water transportation as much as possible because there just weren't any roads. And if you're going to have to have roads, you've got to make your own road to do it. Uh, And if you're going to have an army, you've got to start from essentially scratch there, after the, the uh, loss at the Battle of the Wabash, why, there was no army. You have to start from, from nowhere. And the thing that you also got to remember is that Ohio at this time was, uh, as far as white population was concerned, was a small uh, area along the southern part of the state uh, that uh, didn't probably penetrate more than 30 or 40 miles Uh, above the Ohio River. Kentucky was a lot larger population-wise than was Ohio. And so it is from Kentucky that a large portion of any troop city was going to uh, be involved with came. And, uh, but the the, the town of Cincinnati was probably two or 3,000 people. Uh, I mean, this, this is the biggest city in the state. Uh, and uh, Gallipolis was also uh, a, a significant uh, a community of, of one sort. But this is it. This is not a very, uh, this is a very primitive environment in which these uh, military situation was confronting. 
on the other side of the barrier were the Indians. And uh, there were a variety of different tribes, of which tribes like the Maumee and the Shawnee, the Miami and the Shawnee, uh, who centralized themselves to some degree along what is known as the Maumee River. Now, most Americans have no idea where the Maumee River is. But it essentially begins at Fort Wayne and goes westward towards modern, I mean, eastward towards modern Toledo. And this is the largest flow of water into the Great Lakes comes along the Maumee River. And so the Indian tribes, through many ways, settled along it and its tributaries. Uh, and uh, this is, of course, uh, approximately 150 miles north of Cincinnati. And uh, there are no roads. Uh, there are various rivers that feed into the Maumee and into the Ohio that they can use for some ports of their transportation of supplies and personnel. But the mainstay is that occasionally if they're going to connect from one valley system to the other, they've got to build roads uh, and uh, various watercraft. And, of course, they have to build as far as the United States is concerned, they have to build a uh, usually canoes or some kind of, of small watercraft to take their goods down the the, uh, the various streams. Uh, the Great Lakes, on the other hand, were primarily at this particular point controlled by the Indians or by the British. And so that as a consequence, the United States, at the start of this whole military development in the 1790s, the United States had to uh, transport everything northward to wherever they wanted to go. Now, the critical points are, uh, on this system are both Detroit on the one hand uh, and uh, the a uh, small island of Michilimackinac, as it was known this then, we call it Mackinac Island now, uh, which which was uh, another fortification uh, and a major trading area. From the British point of view, they want, although they had conceded the land south of the Great Lakes to the United States in the Treaty of 1783, there were very many British. Uh, merchants and uh, French merchants also that did not like the idea that the United States was controlling uh, particularly the very valuable fur trade that existed uh, out of what is now modern Michigan, western Ontario, Wisconsin, etc. So they were opposed to the United States expansion into this area and often allied themselves with the Indians. Now this is going to lead to serious problems later on as to some extent they keep betraying the Indians. They betrayed them first when they made this huge concession to the United States of what we would subsequently known as the Old Northwest. They betray them after uh, their the Indians defeat uh, at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, and then they try again to support them, at least temporarily, in the War of 1812, and in the treaty that ends that war, they betrayed them for the third time.
And it seems, though, that they had this opportunity because by the uh, 1790s, the uh, the Native Americans had really lost uh, a lot of their options in terms of allies, that the uh, French had been driven out in, in the 1760s from providing sort of tangible support. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was re- and given that the Americans were the growing uh, threat to the to the Indians ability to. Uh, you know, can, uh, maintain their way of life in that region. It, it was that it was either submission or the British. Uh, yes, uh, they they also lost the Spanish who had controlled Louisiana for a considerable amount of time. So that with the Louisiana Purchase in 1804, that particular potential ally was also out of the the uh, of contention. So the the. And what is going to happen, and what is very adroit as far as one Anthony Wayne and and later William Henry Harrison will do, is they will play the Indians off against one another, the Indian tribes and their leaders, using some who felt, well, the Brits betrayed us now. Uh, We've got to sort of at least work with the Americans and see if we can do that. Or, as will become the case with uh, Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa, better known uh, <clears throat> uh, as the Shawnee Prophet, uh, that they want to coordinate all of the Indians they can possibly get together and to uh, fight off the uh, Americans as a, uh, a single united Indian uh, confederation. A It's an ideal that never really fully formulated, but it was certainly uh, constituted a threat to the United States uh, in the, uh, from, from roughly 1805 through 1814. This situation, as you describe in the book, is not just one, though, that Harrison faces militarily. You describe his apprenticeship where he learns the ways of, of frontier warfare, and, and, and he discovers and and, uh, and, and thinks about how he has to overcome these challenges. But then, as you describe, he he sets aside his military career and he goes into politics. So he doesn't just see these issues from a military standpoint. He also deals with them frequently from a political standpoint as well. Yes, he has to. uh, He only stays uh, in the Army uh, for five years and gets out and becomes an Ohio politician. Uh, and gets himself elected to uh, Congress as a delegate from uh, <clears throat> the Old Northwest to the uh, U.S. Congress. It's there that he begins to meet with a series of the new politics of that particular period, of, of the politicians of that period. First, mostly with the John Adams administration on the one hand, and coordinates with the incoming Jefferson administration on the other, and gets himself appointed to the new Indiana Territory, which is not just Indiana as we now know it, but is going to involve virtually everything west of Ohio. Uh, and uh, he <clears throat> is is now going to be a major figure politically. And here he has to cope with two basic problems militarily. Uh, One is the possible uh, uh, attacks of the the Indians upon the Indiana frontier on the one hand, 
and the other is the possible coordination of the Indians with the British who were operating out of what we now know as on the province of Ontario. Your focus during the uh, uh, most of the first part of the book is upon his dealings with the Native Americans. You start with the uh, Battle of Tippecanoe, which we'll uh, get to shortly, but you also talk a lot about his attitudes towards Indians and the policies that he advocated. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about his relationship with the Indians, uh, both in terms of the policies that he uh, supported and also uh, how he dealt with the military. Because I was surprised to read about how he seemed to have great trust in them when he was fighting alongside them. There was never a sense of suspicion or a concern about betrayal when it came to his allies. Uh, Yes, he did not have, uh, there was always a, a, a group of Indian allies who felt that the British betrayals uh, sort of forced them into American hands. And both the Jefferson administration thought that they could negotiate with the Indians and to a large extent had a fairly idealistic idea of what they could do. The basic problem was that they wanted to uh, essentially make the Indians into uh, surplus agricultural farmers and to take them away from the hunter-gatherer society that most of them had, where women grew corn and other uh, commodities for, for food, but the men hunted. And this was their ideal as to how things go. Well, such a society requires a huge geographic area for people to hunt and uh, move their uh, uh, fields uh, from time to time as uh, the fields sort of became exhausted after a few years of cultivation. And particularly, they needed also to get closer to available wood supplies. And so as a consequence... Uh, the the Indians were were fairly dependent upon supplies from some Western society for very essential ingredients in their lifestyle. Everything from an iron pot. Can you imagine what an Indian wife thought when suddenly she had an iron pot uh, <laughs> to be able to 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 uh, cook food in an entirely different way from what they had before? some kind of shovel or a hoe to help in the the deal, uh, the uh, growing of crops. And so as a consequence, there was uh, a tremendous dependence, not just as we typically say for guns, ammunition, and gunpowder, but for basic little commodities that made life a lot easier. And they either had to get these from the Americans or the British. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Harrison sees is he's trying to carry out this Jeffersonian policy of having the Indians become what we would today describe as commercial agricultural people, like most of the white farmers were involved in, and instead be getting out of a subsistence economy into a commercial one. And it was, in in many respects, a futile idea, but it was one which the Jefferson administration was trying to push. Harrison tried to carry it out while at the same time negotiating treaties with the Indians that would uh, 
confined them to ever smaller areas of land and at the same time uh, to supposedly force them to become uh, commercial agricultural people rather than hunter-gatherer types. And as the, you would have tribes that would resist that, they would turn to the British mm -hmm. and appeal for British support in their struggle against the Americans. Correct. Now, this gets to the, uh, the resources that Harrison had to deal with the Native Americans as they posed this growing military threat. And you have this uh, interesting examination of Harrison's views of militia. And on the face of it, they would seem to be uh, rather unusual, given that he did have a period where he was a officer in the United States Army. And there was is historically this uh, this this uh, contempt might be a bit too strong of a word, but certainly at the best a skepticism about the prowess of the militia. And as you explain, that wasn't Harrison's attitude towards them. No, he, he didn't. And one of the things he learned during the Anthony Wayne campaign of 1773 to 95, 1793 to 95 was that uh, whatever few regular troops that Wayne could acquire were not sufficient to be able to carry out the war. And so what uh, the, the campaign that he needed to, to overwhelm the enemy. So as a consequence, he had to depend upon a militia. But there were there really sort of two types of militia. One is supposedly the requirement that every adult male uh, regularly drill uh, in, in a uh, militia unit. And this system never really worked. It never did work, but it was an ideal that was out there. But on the other hand, for various expeditions, Wayne and later Harrison acquired what we would call volunteer militia. These were men who volunteered for a particular period of time, usually the summer season, to engage in military operations. And... Uh, since Kentucky was much more populous uh, than Ohio or Indiana, as a consequence, a large proportion of these volunteer militia came from uh, the uh, area of Kentucky, and it is they that acquired a friendship with uh, young Mr. Harrison on Wayne's staff that he's going to be using these friendships to get volunteers to come during uh, the Tippecanoe and later the War of 1812 campaigns. And as you point out, you have this, uh, the, these volunteers oftentimes have more military experience than the regulars uh, with, uh, with whom they're serving. That is correct. Uh, most people did not want to sign up for a multiple-year obligation to the military. And so what you have is these summertime soldiers who have been engaged in campaigns, remember, uh, from the, the 1790s on, and some of them going back to the American Revolution. And as a consequence of that, they are uh, fairly experienced in the whole problems of military training. Now, they're 
obedience to their commanders may not be as good as some regulars <laughs> were, but they were pretty good and hard-fighting soldiers. And uh, the the officer corps uh, sometimes has some extraordinary veterans of the American Revolution who are far junior, I mean senior in age to young Mr. Harrison, but who become very good friends of his. Uh, one of them is a Kentucky brigadier general by the name of Charles Scott, who later becomes governor of Kentucky. And uh, as we'll we'll get into this probably a little later, but it is Scott who makes uh, Harrison into a brigadier, a major general uh, in the Kentucky militia, even though he lived in Indiana. One of the things that we remember Harrison for today, of course, is during his 1840 presidential campaign, where he was famously had uh, campaign was uh, campaigning under the slogan of Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And yet, as you explain, the Battle of Tippecanoe, which uh, is the uh, which is this important battle of the uh, era, especially in terms of the Native Americans, it takes place both a little before the War of 1812. And it also, uh, and thus doesn't include the British. And as you also explained, it, 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 it's a bit overstated in terms, it, it's not the, the most significant battle that Harrison himself fights. Could you explain a bit the, the run-up to the Battle of Tippecanoe and, 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 what, and, and, and Harrison's role in, in, in winning it? Okay, what was going on is the, the Indians were beginning to... to uh, go into two major political camps. One of them were those who were willing to live with the Americans, uh, and the other were a group of major intertribal uh, peoples led by uh, a, a man known as the Shawnee Prophet, or Tenskwatawa was uh, his official Indian name, and his brother Tecumseh, who was more the political leader of the family. And Tecumseh was trying desperately to coordinate a whole host of Indians, uh, tribes, to work together. And they even built a village in northern Indiana known as Prophetstown, after his brother, which uh, contained several tribal groups together. Now, this worked very much against what the uh, Amer- the uh, white Americans wanted to do, and that is that they, they were unifying the Indians into a single political military entity rather than keeping them separate into separate tribes. That causes to come, uh, to, uh, Harrison a considerable amount of problem. And as a consequence of that, Harrison tries to organize Uh, his uh, forces against this kind of a unified uh, community. He even has a meeting with Tecumseh, and Tecumseh uh, says, I am not only going to try and get the Indians of the Great Lakes together, but also try to go into the South and coordinate with Indians in what is now modern Alabama and Mississippi. And uh, this was a significant threat. But what he has done is he, in going south and letting Harrison know he's going south, he, that means that in control of Prophetstown was his brother, Tenskwatawa, and Tenskwatawa was not a military man. 
And Harrison sees this as the opportunity to go and attack this multi-tribal village and uh, to force the Indians to break up this kind of unity. And he goes north and uh, has an encampment not too far from Prophetstown, which is located on Tippecanoe Creek, hence the name. Uh, and he uh, encamps one evening, uh, and uh, that night the, the prophet and his various combined tribes decide to attack the uh, encampment of Harrison, who has both regulars and uh, volunteers with him. Uh, and uh, this battle that uh, in in begins in the night is a rather vigorously fought one, but one in which the Indians eventually are forced to retreat to abandon Prophetstown, which he uh, immediately burns down. And he breaks up the alliance that Tecumseh had put together uh, in Tecumseh's absence. All of this is in 1811. This is before the war. The Indians are without any formal British alliance at this time. And so uh, the, the Indians don't have any recourse other than normal commercial trade with the, the British uh, to uh, fall back on. The next year, the United States and Great Britain get involved in a formal war, and a military alliance with the Indians can then take place. And as you describe, that alliance really is key in terms of strategies, because you mentioned that the uh, traditional American strategy is to devastate the uh, crops that the village that the uh, women in the Native American villages tend to. That strategy is blunted by the fact that now the Indians can be supplied uh, rations by the British, which means that it is much more difficult to uh, deprive the Native Americans of sustenance. Yes, but of course the 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 tactic of uh, destroying the the villages and their their fields forces the Indians to move ever closer to Detroit so that they can get supplied by the British and slowly but surely they're going to be evacuating uh, to a large degree what uh, exists in northern Indiana and uh, Ohio. Uh, as they move closer to Detroit, from which they can be supplied by the water. Now, this, of course, then brings up what is going to happen uh, uh, to Detroit, which is technically an American town. And what uh, occurs here is one of the more uh, brilliant uh, little uh, strategic operations in the course of the War of 1812 led by the British uh, com both commanding officer and political officer of what was then known as Upper Canada, but uh, we would now call Ontario, uh, Isaac Brock. And Brock decides that the only way that he can defend Canada is, one, to ally himself with the Native Americans on the one hand, and two, conduct two very, very quick attacks on critical American posts that will uh, open up the ability to support uh, the Native Americans. And these are the attacks first upon Mackinac Island, or Fort Michelin Mackinac that was there, uh, which a combined uh, British, uh, 
and a fur trader and uh, Native American people take uh, uh, Fort Mackinac, which has something like 50 American troops at it. Uh, and then he, the most stunning of all things is the forced surrender of Detroit in August of 1812. Uh, this, of course, then seemingly opens up everything uh, for the British and uh, the uh, counterattack has to, to begun. Uh, this is going to be the far part of, or de- demonstrate the, the part of a very complicated uh, political, military rank uh, engagement between Harrison and his uh, various rivals uh, that uh, eventually ends in Harrison becoming the senior commanding officer uh, in the Old Northwest. One of the uh, it's fascinating to read in your book about all of the uh, ambitions that so many of these men have, uh, some for military glory, uh, others for political careers. Of course, the two are hardly mutually exclusive during this time. And, and, and so one of Harrison's great successes is his ability to eventually win out. He starts as the governor. And he transitions into being a brigadier general, uh, but it, it initially it's kind of a, a very uh, it's a very roundabout, circuitous way. He is the governor of Indiana. He becomes a general in the Kentucky militia, and then he finally becomes a general in the United States Army. Yes, he's uh, maneuvering things around very successfully uh, uh, as a. Uh, Senior command in any military installation requires political expertise, okay? You've got to be able to be not just a good military leader, but you've got to be able to weigh avenues one way or another. And Harrison plays it off very well, getting Governor Scott to make him a major general in the Kentucky militia. Now, technically that's against Kentucky law, but they do it anyway. Anyway, now, is he now senior to the regular Army Brigadier General who is in Ohio or not, a man by the name of James Winchester? And uh, does a regular Army Brigadier outrank a uh, a, two-star Kentucky uh, Major General uh, like uh, Harrison is? And Harrison begins to uh, maneuver himself one way or another, but he eventually gets control over what we would now call the whole area west of Ohio and Michigan, uh, from modern Indiana to Illinois and north to Wisconsin. But Winchester makes a very, very, it now looks as though Harrison is going to possibly get a major generalship in the U.S. Army, the regular army. He turns down a brigadier generalship, which will make him junior to Winchester in terms of data rank. So what he does is he says, I won't take a brigadier generalship in the regular army. I will only take a major generalship so I can outrank Winchester. Winchester, seeing all of this, decides he needs to have a decided victory. And he goes north uh, from Fort Wayne into Michigan and uh, is on what is uh, called then Frenchtown, Michigan, which is now Monroe, Michigan, he is roundly defeated and captured by the Brit, uh, by a combined <clears throat> British Indian uh, group 
that uh, and uh, there's a massacre of many of the troops thereafter uh, by the Indians in particular uh, that are have surrendered and Harrison uh, is now going to become the major general in the old Northwest. How does he plan to uh, defeat the British? Well, it becomes increasingly obvious that logistics are the the big thing involved in all of this. If you're going to go from the Cincinnati area and try and retake Detroit, you're going to have to have supplies. There's an old military adage that amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And I think that this is very important to understanding it. Very quickly, Harrison begins to understand that to really control the situation, he needs to have control over Lake Erie, which is critical for two things. The only way the British can really get significant amount of supplies for themselves and for their Indian allies is to use the lake to transport these from the Niagara frontier uh, to uh, uh, the Detroit uh, area. And to some extent, what the Americans uh, need to do is to transport supplies from the area roughly between what is now Erie, Pennsylvania and Cleveland, Ohio, to wherever the American army is on the western edge of Lake Erie. So that who controls Lake Erie is now going to control primarily the logistical system necessary to support any kind of operation by either nation's military forces. And as a consequence, what you have here is a big buildup for the naval operation on Lake Erie. And from the American standpoint, this is an operation centered primarily in what is now Erie, Pennsylvania, where we start building a new a fleet to fight the few British vessels that are on the lake. Meanwhile, the British are trying to build a small squadron at the uh, in the Detroit River area of modern Ontario, uh, and uh, the two sides are engaged in a military construction race. In this particular situation, the Americans win the race, and they eventually, in September of 1813, are able to win the Battle of Lake Erie. From that particular point now, then the British ability to supply their Indian allies is broken, and as well as supply their own troops. And so now Harrison can march northward uh, towards Detroit, and the British have to withdraw, uh, and Perry coordinates with him very, very well in transporting many of Harrison's forces to uh, the Canadian side of the Detroit River, and they begin to push uh, the uh, British and their Indian allies uh, west, uh, eastward. That's one of the parts of the book where Harrison's uh, military abilities really do stand out, which is his ability to cooperate with uh, Oliver Hazard Perry 
not just in terms of two officers in distinct commands, but also to coordinate their activities in a way that, as you described, was in some respects prohibited by their uh, by their civilian superiors. Yeah, they they what what goes on here? Harrison supplies soldiers that serve as sailors on Perry's fleet because Perry doesn't get enough sailors to uh, to do everything, uh, and then. Uh, when Harrison's army gets up to Detroit and starts moving into Canada, Perry's naval forces supply keep a supply line uh, for them that goes uh, eventually up the so-called the Thames River uh, and allows Harrison to march fairly deep into uh, Canada to fight the, what is known as the Battle of the Thames. Uh, in uh, the the fall of 1813, and essentially to destroy the Indians on the one, uh, the Indian forces and to kill Tecumseh on the one hand, and to uh, force the British back to the Niagara frontier. And for a, basically the remainder of the war, both sides of the Detroit River are now in American hands. The Battle of the Thames is really the battle that is Harrison's finest hour as a military officer, not the yeah, battle of Tippecanoe. Absolutely. Uh, there, there is no question. And here he really exploits uh, what he's got. He does not take most of his uh, regular army troops with him, I think for two reasons. Uh, one is that they are really recently recruited and are pretty inexperienced in one respect, both their officer corps and uh, their enlisted personnel on the one hand. And so he has got more experienced troops with the primarily Kentucky volunteers that he's got with him. And two, these people are not, are, are not going to do what I'm afraid Harrison felt the Kentuckians would do, and this is to seek revenge for the River Raisin Massacre upon any Indian that they saw. And uh, what he has got to do, once he's got Detroit back, is to negotiate with the Indians to try and get them to essentially come to peace with the United States, and then he will begin to give them uh, supplies so that they can physically survive in what's going to be a very cold winter uh, uh, in uh, the Detroit area. Uh, so he leaves his regulars for the most part behind, but he takes with him Kentucky volunteers of two particular types. One are, uh, and maybe three types, I should say. One are the uh, uh, cavalry troops, which are armed primarily with pistols and with sabers. He takes what are also known as mounted riflemen, these are essentially military troops, I mean infantry troops, who are mounted on horses and can therefore move very rapidly to take up positions, but they usually fight as infantry. And then he has his own Kentucky infantry that also go with him. And he takes all three of these groups with uh, logistical support coming up the river from Perry and moves eastward into uh, what was then known as Upper Canada. 
You described this battle as not just a, a military triumph and a triumph organization, but as you explained, it really has enormous impact for American history. I was wondering if you could explain what Harrison's vic- uh, achievement of the Battle of the Thames does for uh, the for both uh, the War of eighteen twelve and the and the peace that followed. Well, basically, this is probably, this is the real triumph of uh, Harrison's career. It's not as poetic as uh, Tippecanoe, which I think is one reason why this particular phrase has been there. It just, it just flows on your, your deal. Tim's doesn't quite do it, okay? Uh, uh, Tim's and Tyler, too, just wouldn't have made it. Uh, but anyway, what the the first thing is that Tecumseh is killed, uh, and the Indians are essentially forced uh, to with- withdraw. The Kentucky cavalry and infantry charges the British troops, forces them to withdraw very precipitously. There are a large number of cap- uh, prisoners of war taken in this, this operation, and so that if Canada is going to get back to its original boundaries, it is going to have to eventually negotiate a deal that will uh, give the Americans probably their original boundaries uh, along the Great Lakes uh, also, because the British continued throughout the war to continue to control Mackinac Island and what we would now call as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and the, most of the state of modern Wisconsin. So that this particular victory justifies the British giving back to the United States what they controlled in the upper Great Lakes area on the one hand in exchange for getting back the western, southwestern part of modern Ontario that the Americans controlled. Uh, so that and in all of this, the British finally say, we are no longer going to support any Indian warfare inside the United States. So for the Indian tribes, this is their big defeat. They no longer are going to have, after the war ends in 1815, they are going to have any kind of support for any military operation that they conduct inside the United States. So it's... A dramatic achievement uh, that Her- uh, of, of Harrison's, and it really is the, the culmination of his military career. And yet, as you describe at the end of your book, it, it's not one without controversy in how he has to spend years defending his reputation, uh, defending uh, his, his claim to, to uh, what he achieved. Yes, it is. And it... Uh... Part of this is that the new Secretary of War that comes in is a man by the name of James Armstrong, John Armstrong. And Armstrong doesn't like Harrison. First of all, you must understand the politics of the early national period. There have been a series of Virginia presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. All of these men are Virginians, with the exception of John Adams. Armstrong is a Pennsylvanian who has married into a prominent New York family and lives in New York, who has had considerable military experience, and who has pulled in to be Secretary of War. Armstrong uh, fears 
that somebody like Harrison is going to rise to national prominence and jeopardize his chances to be the, the future president of the United States. And so he works against Harrison as much as he possibly can, issuing orders to, directly to Harrison's subordinates in the Old Northwest without going through Harrison, who was technically their commanding officer. And Harrison gets increasingly frustrated at the operations that Armstrong is trying to conduct. Moreover, there are some people who think that Harrison should be made the commanding general of the whole United States Army, not just control uh, the commanding general of the Old Northwest. And uh, Armstrong cannot allow this and, uh, and doesn't. And so he pushes Harrison off into what is now a secondary theater. Much of the war is being fought in two areas, one in Chesapeake Bay, which results in the national anthem, and the other is uh, in the area of uh, the uh, western New York to uh, Lake Champlain. And that whole area is where the, the, most of the fighting occurs for the rest of the war, and Harrison is kept out of it, even though his victory at uh, the Thames makes him the commander of the biggest military success the United States has thus far had in the war. Uh, and uh, Harrison gets increasingly upset, and finally in frustration at an insubordinate, what he considers to be a... Uh, a failure to follow the chain of command by Armstrong uh, to the commander at Detroit, uh, Harrison, in frustration, resigns. It may have been a, at least in the short run, strategic mistake on his part. Now, there's a terrible irony in all of this. Armstrong is going to later be blamed by the Madison administration for the defeat uh, at Washington a few months later. And so he is kicked out of the uh, post as Secretary of War, and uh, as a consequence of that, he doesn't get to become President of the United States as he thought he should have been. <laughs> and, and, and and Harrison then uh, goes, uh, there, there's that controversy after the war where uh, he, after Armstrong's been discredited, but he still has people like Jonathan Jennings who are criticizing Harrison. Harrison gets elected to Congress basically to defend his reputation. He does so successfully. Uh, yes. Uh, one of the, the things that I, we haven't mentioned Jonathan Jennings before, but Jennings is Harrison's political rival inside the territory of Indiana. And uh, Jennings doesn't like Harrison, in part because Harrison, uh, rather maladroitly, uh, wanted to bring slavery into Indiana. And uh, needless to say, Jennings and uh, the more northern-oriented uh, settlers of Indiana re resented this. Uh, but he begins a policy of denigrating what uh, Harrison has done in the war and blaming him for a variety of differing uh, incidents, including the uh, defeat of one of Harrison's subordinates during the defense of Fort Meigs. Now, one must understand that Fort Meigs is in the same county that Bowling Green State University is located, <laughs> so we're back to where we started in all of this, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I sort of got involved in this in the first place. 
Well, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us uh, what you're working on now? Well, uh, I am in retirement uh, and am now working uh, not on an entirely different subject. Uh, I spend my winters in New Bern, North Carolina, where I am now, and uh, am a member of a ep- local Episcopal church that uh, is cele- just celebrated its 300th anniversary. And so they've got me writing their 300th anniversary history, uh, which I am somewhat delinquent in getting done, uh, but am in, enjoying. The irony of all this is that it gets me back to my original work in Colonial Maryland, which was also involved, in part at least, with the study of the early religious history of that colony. It's a nice, uh, circuitous uh, career in that respect. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Professor Skaggs, thank you very much for taking some time out of your uh, schedule to uh, speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, and I appreciate very much your phone call.